0: Irreverent, over-the-top, and smart as a whip. this is The
1: Rob Black Show.
0: In second grade, I had a big crush on Mrs. O'Neill. I was pretty convinced she was going to fall in love with me. I was pretty convinced I was going to be her adoptive son, later to be her husband. I don't know if the husband thing sounds right, but it feels like it was a right memory. Who was Mrs. O'Neill? In second grade, she was the school nurse. And she had the perfect kind of red hair. And I used to make excuses every day in school to go see the school nurse. I would raise my hand. And one day, I didn't realize the difference between congested and constipated. I raised my hand. The teacher says, what is it today, Rob? I said, my nose is all constipated. I need to go to the nurse. And all the kids started laughing. The teacher started laughing, thinking I was a funny guy, thinking I was really you know quick on my feet. Nope, just didn't know the word. The most important question in second grade should not be, what is it, Rob? Why do you want to go see the school nurse today? <clears throat> and for the record, I went to see the school nurse that day. And she started catching on and uh, started telling me more and more about her, I think, boyfriend or fiance. And she moved to Italy and broke my heart. But that's the end of that. The most important question in second grade should be, what do you think it should be? What do you want to do when you grow up? There's investing. There's earning. There's saving. The earning part is something we overlook all too often. I told you recently that a friend who I knew 20 years ago and she was looking for a husband and I was looking for a wife and we kind of like crossed each other's paths for a very, very brief period. And, uh, next thing you know, she's pregnant with some guy's baby, not mine. I know you're saying, okay, good. Where's this going, Rob? (laughs) Well, uh, She got married. No, no, she didn't get married. She had a kid. And I was like, ah, she's eventually going to marry him. She's eventually going to marry him, right? No, he's out of the life. So every relationship she's been in since this guy, she's had to go, I've got a young daughter at home. That has to be murderous. That has to be tough. It's a lot of love and there's nothing wrong with it. But I, I told you when I talked to her, she had like no, no interest in sending her kid to college. And I, I I couldn't imagine growing up like that. Because in second grade I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I knew I wanted to do something cool in the world. So her daughter in second grade was like, Nope, you're not going to college. So she's in like the dance core. And again, here's like you're saying, uh oh Rob, you're about to get canceled if you say what I think you're gonna say. So she took jazz lessons and she tried to get her daughter to be like um an actress. She tried to hire an agent. This is just shameful, in my opinion, that had she put the effect on high for college want, don't be like your mama, go to college kind of thing. So her daughter is now in the dance squad in 10th, 11th grade, good looking young woman. And um, I'm like, her Her best hope is to marry well, which falls into my one of my top 20 things or top 10 things to do in your 20s. You know, one of them is start a 401k. Really the basic things. We need a top 10 steps in your 20s. Drop me an email, rob at robblackshow.com. It's rob robblackshow.com. And it's just a basic email that I put together years ago. Top 10 things to do in your 30s. Top 10 things to do in your 40s. Where you should be in your 40s. I haven't got them all memorialized as EP wealth, branded swag. But if you if you don't want an email on top 10 things to do in your 20s, so what was interesting in this one is it's Mary well, right? I have a friend who she kind of dodged the marriage thing, but she had the baby thing. And then she just basically had very low expectations for her daughter and her daughter's going to live up to that. I couldn't imagine not having gone to college. Now, here's the real question. What would you do if you can go back in time and say, what job would you do? And that's the fun one for me. Um, I've got a friend who um, has a daughter and her daughter just, you know, moved to Calgary. I think Calgary is like, that's an interesting one. I haven't heard of a lot of people moving to Calgary. And uh, so obviously my friend's Canadian. But her daughter moves to Calgary at the base of the Rockies because she's always wanted to live at the base of the Rockies. And I'm like, I've never had that desire in my life to live at the base of the Rockies. That's an interesting thought. And when you talk further about it, she's like, yeah, we wanted to live. She wanted to live in an area that has, you know, Garth Brooks concerts or very Hot Chili Peppers will stop by. But not the New York or Toronto or L.A. I get it. I think this is a smart person. The housing is incredibly cheap in Calgary. I looked up while we we're talking. So it's still a big city without the all the expenses having rolled in. It's got an international airport. Housing is relatively affordable. It's got a ton of nature living at the foot of the Rockies. It's got a pro sports teams. So one of the big questions in you're in second grade is what do you want to be when you grow up? And I think the reality is when you're 50, you go, what do you wish you could have been? I think I wish I could have been more adventurous, lived in more places. Been a little bit more free now. Again, I've got enough wealth to retire today and live till the day I die, and pass that on to my kids, and they can live until the day they die, as long as they don't have gambling problems or something along those lines, bad marriages, bad houses, bad cars. It's interesting because it's, it's a lot easier to start thinking about money when, when you when you talk about it so simply from a second grader's opinion. What do you want to be when you grow up? I clearly chose the path of financial security over adventure. In my teens, uh, you know, I lived in 16 places by the time I was 18 years old. So I never went to the same school two years in a row. It was, that's not totally true, but I never had two full years at the same school. So I never finished a second year is the right way of saying that. Grammar. Grammar. It's spelling's tricky friend. Um, so what career would you choose? And it's, it's, it's cute because in your, when you're in second grade, if I were to ask my kids in their past second grade, but if I were to ask them today in fifth and seventh grade, I'm like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, I bet it's going to be pretty close because they are going to have financial freedom. One of my kids wants to be an animator. He's fascinated with drawing and he's really, really good at it. Um, I'm not going to push him that direction, but if that's the way he wants to go, I'll pay for art classes and I'll support his dream. Uh, interesting, right? So what do you want to be and what do you want your children to be? I think is actually pretty important. My friend, Sarah, um, I think she made a bad choice. And again, that's me being judgy on a financial perspective. I hope we could all live in a world where you say morally, this is what I want the president to do. Uh, But For the rest of the country, this is what I want the president to do. For... My political party, this is the type of president I want. I hope we can all live in a world where you're like, you know, politically, I'm this way, but uh, family-wise, I'm that way. As long as you know who you are, I'm fine with that understanding. You can find me online at Rob Black Show, Twitter, Rob Black Show, YouTube, Rob Black Show. I'm Rob Black. Honest, straightforward, and right to the point. The Rob Black Show. This is Rob Black. Thank you for listening to my podcast, The Rob Black Show. If you're looking for a certified financial planner or getting ready for retirement, contact me at rob at robblackshow.com. I can get you in touch with a certified financial planner from EP Wealth. Contact me, rob at robblackshow.com. That's rob at robblackshow.com.
1: Questions about how to invest in your retirement? Check out robblackshow.com and get in on the conversation. Subscribe to the podcast and video channels. No one cares more about your money than you do. It's time to start to feel good about your financial future robblackshow.com, robblackshow.com. Brought to you by EP Wealth. This is the Rob Black Show.
0: Joined by Adam Phillips. He is a CFA and a CFP, Director of Portfolio Strategy with EP Wealth. Before we get into his content, let's take a look at how the markets are doing. We've had January and February down months. March is fighting what out. Maybe we can have a positive month for the year. The Nasdaq's down nine and a. Half. 9.4% well off its bottoms. The S&P 500 down 4.6%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 4%. The 10-year Treasury is up 96 basis points for the year. 96 basis points is four basis points short of 1%. So that's a big move. Bitcoin is now positive. That's interesting. And oil still the story, up 49% year to date. It's underlying the whole market with inflation pressures. Mr. Phillips, <laughs> Adam Phillips, I'll tell like you that. What should we start with today?
1: Yeah, there's there's definitely a number of topics we can cover, but I, I just I think it's really interesting. You would just went through the the performance update, the market update there, S and P five hundred. Uh, just looking at the broad index, down about five percent from its all time high. So, you know, you, you'd look at the fact that uh, that this the, the war in Ukraine continues to play out. There's still a lot of uncertainty. We've touched on it in recent weeks with the fact that the Fed is now aggressively chasing down inflation. Yet the market, for the most part, appears to be focusing on other things, focusing on the positives maybe, or or focusing on the fact that because yields have jumped, you mentioned the 10-year treasury, um, maybe that strengthens the argument for stocks going forward. People are a little bit nervous about owning bonds when rates are rising. And, And so I think that's really interesting. It'll be something that we watch from here on out. Obviously, the situation with Russia and Ukraine uh, remains fluid. And and so um, I I think that as much as we try to focus on the long term here, um, it's a fluid situation. And and I think it's good that we do these weekly check-ins because situation can change from week to week. But uh, we'll be interested to see, you know, what happens, uh, you know, specifically around uh, inflation uh, in in the coming weeks uh, and and really what that means for the outlook going forward and, and see if these gains can hold.
0: Let's stay with Russia and Ukraine for just a moment. Um, It's not just the higher oil prices, it's the higher natural gas prices. It's the financial relationships. It's a country that used to contribute to the world. Now they're being isolated. Um, There's thoughts that China may try to take advantage and get a little more business activity. Saudi Arabia may try to switch oil and from barrels and dollars to the yuan, things that I don't really understand the repercussions on. Can you talk a little bit about not the new world order, because I don't want to go there, but we're talking about life after Russia and how Wall Street may be looking at it.
1: You know, it's it's interesting. And I think it even starts before this Russian-Ukraine conflict. And you, you can go back to COVID. But I think you actually have to go probably a step further. And, and I, I think one can argue when this whole, what we can call deglobalization theme mm. really started to pick up, and maybe it was a global financial crisis sometime around then. And I think if you look at that there are actually charts that show global trade as a percent of global GDP, and it's actually fallen. It, it hit a peak right around that that financial crisis, and so and then we know that that Brexit uh, happened, and and there was this I, I think shift towards maybe isolationism, and uh, and and with COVID, there there was talk about um, bringing supply chains back uh, to one's home country and not relying so heavily on on uh, on foreign economies, and I think that that's really something that this this latest conflict with, uh, with Russia and Ukraine, I, I think this really adds some fuel to that fire, adds a little bit more to that theme. And I think that that's what Wall Street is really focusing on right now. What kind of an impact does that have on inflation down the road on supply chains getting back online? I, I think it's going to take some time to actually sort this one out. But we know that Russia and Ukraine, for that matter, are a relatively small part of the global economy. But that does not mean that they don't have a large impact uh, on the economy. We know that we, uh, I I think that many of us maybe didn't realize it uh, before this conflict began. And now we are painfully aware of just how much Uh, major foreign economies rely on them for agricultural commodities, energy commodities. We've talked, you know, oil prices, natural gas. And I I think that's really why Wall Street is focusing on it right now. I think that uh, with earnings season um, set to begin here in a couple of months, we're winding down the first quarter. I think Wall Street is focused on comments from companies and and, and maybe uh, trying to get a sense of what this means for corporate earnings. What we haven't seen so far, is uh, our, our uh, major changes to the earnings projections. We know that earnings are really the lifeblood of the stock market. If we see that earnings are holding up, I think that's a good thing. And it tells you that investors, analysts, broadly speaking, think that the market and companies can weather this storm. If we start to see these roll over, I think that will um, you know, give us a little bit of pause and maybe lead us to rethink things. But for now, I, I think that's really what Wall Street is focusing on is the fact that earnings projections uh, appear... Fairly strong and, and stable, looking at about eight or nine percent growth for for this year, uh, which is pretty good. Uh, and they, they think the Fed is—they uh, are certainly committed to fighting inflation, uh, maybe um, maybe to a fault. And I think that uh, that's something that we're going to have to wait and, and see. And, and that's definitely something we could talk about here because I think it speaks to what the bond market uh, is currently telling us.
0: Before we go back to the bond market, let's talk about the stock market and stay with earnings for just a little bit longer. One of the things that you brought up uh, off the air with me was Tina. There is no alternative. Earnings growth of 8% is good. It's not great, but it's also not bad. It's kind of moderation, goldilocks and so to speak, not, it's good. Um, Is that good enough to support there is no alternative and keep us away from investing in, in alternative investments?
1: Well, you know, I, I think alternative investments is a broad category. In, in, in this, in this context, I think alternatives really speaks to the other type of traditional investment, which is fixed income, which is bonds. Okay. And so, I would say that right now, I, I think that. Maybe the argument for owning stocks over bonds um, is a little bit weaker than it was. We know that uh, you, you you can't discount the the potential impact to growth uh, to economies from what's going on in Eastern Europe right now. Our view is still favorable, but I but I think there's just a lot of uncertainty. You know, we we just a, a couple of months ago we thought we were making progress and, and we were starting to put COVID nineteen behind us, and, and we were finally going to operate in a more uh, in, in a world with a little bit more clarity. Now this happens, and we are working in the clouds again. And, and so I, I think that's what makes calling this difficult. But this, the, the argument behind Tina, it, it really just suggests that when yields are as low as they are um, in, in the bond world, then you really have no alternative but to invest in stocks, many of which offer yields that are higher than the bond market. And they give you a little bit more potential for, uh, for gains, for appreciation that lets you um, put up a little, at least a little bit of a better fight against the, the threat of inflation. That's the whole argument behind Tina. And I think that right now, it, it still makes a lot of sense with bond yields reaching uh, about two and a half percent on the 10-year treasury. You mentioned up close to 1% just since the year began. I think the argument is a little bit weaker than it was, but I think that it still makes sense. And, uh, and you know because we do look to the fact that uh, equity valuations remain, remain elevated, they, they are not in bubble territory. They're also not cheap. But we are looking at the fact that these companies are still reporting earnings growths, a lot of them are cheaper than they were uh, at the beginning of the year. And so I think there's some, uh, there's some value there. And I think that if one is a long term investor, and they can stomach this, this near term volatility that we're dealing with, I I think that it makes sense to have uh, a slight bias towards equities.
0: Speaking of stomach and volatility, I always encourage clients to reach out to their financial planners, their wealth advisors, if they're feeling things are a little bit too volatile, because things can always be changed up for you. Let's talk about the yield curve. This is something that it hits media and it goes right over my head. What is the yield curve and why do I care?
1: Yeah, I mean that the yield curve and, and, uh, uh, you, you brought it up, so I'm going to warn you, I, I try not to get too wonky here, but really what wonky it means right? is, is that when you're, when you're investing in bonds, you can invest uh, across the curve, meaning you can invest in short-term bonds up to long-term bonds, uh, meaning a 30-year treasury bond being, being the long-term bond. When you're investing in these longer-term bonds, you expect that you're putting your, your money um, at risk for a longer period of time. You're also subjecting yourself to more long-term inflation risk. Um, that is going to erode the value of, of, of that money over time. And so you expect to be compensated for it. In a normal yield environment, what that means is that you would get a, a lower yield by investing in a short-term bond than you would by investing in a long-term bond, meaning a 30-year bond. in, an, in a situation where the yield curve inverts, you know, first it flattens, obviously, which means that the difference, uh, the spread between these two types of bonds starts to narrow. They start to come in a little bit if that happens enough, then you actually see the yield curve invert, meaning that you find yourself in a situation where you 're getting a higher yield on short term bonds than you 're getting on long term bonds mm. it's it's difficult to even wrap your arms around that how that could even happen um, but but it does happen, and it happens when a- investors start to um, they start to uh, price in a uh, potential um, in, in this case, it's it's a lot of the move is on the short end, meaning that yields uh, on the on the, the short end of the curve are actually rising a lot. Of, a lot of that um, reflects the the belief that the market expects the uh, the Fed to start raising rates quite quite aggressively, and so that's putting upward pressure on the, on the short term bonds. But it, it can also tell a story about, about the, the economic outlook. And so this generally happens when people are getting a little bit worried about the outlook for the U.S. economy. And historically, it's been a decent you know decent uh, recession indicator. The yield curve inverts that if we look at the two-year treasury and the 10-year treasury, it starts to, uh, it, it, it inverts on average about a year before the economy goes into a recession. Obviously, no, no indicator is perfect. That's why we look at a lot of them. Um, but but I think it's it has a good enough track record that it, it it's something that a lot of us watch what it means to to uh, to consumers to to households uh, is is the fact that, uh, you know, we, we need to understand that as the Fed is uh, on this course towards raising rates, it does actually impact uh, a lot of their uh, a lot of the rates that they're paying on, on things like credit cards. Um, if they're on uh, things that uh, have liabilities that are based on adjustable uh, rates, you know, adjustable rate mortgages and, you know, the, these variable um, rates on credit card loans. So things like that, you know, what, the, the reason this this leads to a recession and, and I could feel myself getting long winded here. And so I'll, I'll stop here. But some might be wondering, well, why is this actually uh, predict a recession historically, and I, I think the best way to think about it is from the standpoint of banks that are providing liquidity now what they 're doing is they 're taking money in the form of deposits and they 're paying uh, those individuals or, or businesses a very small amount of interest. We know uh, all too well how small that that rate of interest is. And what they're doing is they're going and taking those deposits and using them to provide loans. And obviously, they're loaning uh, at rates that are a lot, um, a lot higher than they're paying out to their depositors. And so that means that these banks are working on the spread. They're trying to get that, that net interest margin. They're trying to um, borrow from their depositors at a low rate and lend out to these uh, to these borrowers at a high rate when these, when the yield curve actually um, inverts and it flattens, it can actually disincentivize these banks from providing liquidity. And so that is what happens when credit is actually constrained in this environment, it can lead to a recession. And that's really, I think, the best way to think about why yield curve is bad for the economy, bad for consumers.
0: And yet, I throw this out there because I like throwing in my little bit of knowledge compared to your big amount of knowledge. Recessions shouldn't be the R word. I like recessions. I like because they curb excesses and we have the fed fighting inflation recessions fight inflation as well and it can be something like restaurants get easier to get into um 101 gets easier to travel up and down on on the highways um it just curbs the excesses um young kids coming out of college don't get six figures they get high five figure salaries kind of thing
1: well, I, I think batting. that's right. Yeah, and, and and not to interrupt you, Rob, but I think that's a great point. And we, and, you know, one of the things that we say is that the best cure for high prices is is high prices, okay. right? And 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 I think one of the reasons that the Fed is trying to um, trying to to rein in inflation and slow down, you know, tap the brakes on the economy, is because they are trying to reduce demand. We know about a lot of uh, we, we know a lot of today's inflation is the result of supply shocks, these uh, supply shock on, on the supply chain, on, uh, on on commodities, energy prices. And so what, the, the Fed obviously can't control that. They can't control the, the price of gasoline that we're paying when, when we go to fill our tanks. But what they can control is demand in the form of interest rates. And so if they raise interest rates enough, they could... Dampen demand, and, and so that just leads to less less demand, less buying of these things that are that are elevated in price. And so I I think that's a great point.
0: Let's continue to pick your brain. There's a lot of economic data out this week. Let's start with well, there's consumer confidence, there's the JOLTS report, and there's jobs report. So it, it's a nice slate. You want to start with consumer confidence because I think that plays into higher interest rates and the word recession is looming, kind of things like that
1: yeah, absolutely. So conference board data is out tomorrow, which is Tuesday. Uh, consumer confidence uh, has been weak, n- not as weak as its counterpart consumer sentiment. There's various reasons for that. But I think the theme is that consumers don't feel very good. Um, I, I think what what we've seen historically is that consumers are extremely sensitive to the, the price of uh, of energy. Um, and and they are feeling that pain. Um, really, uh, on, on you know, it depends how much you drive, but they're feeling it. Um, it it's, it's front and center. It's top of mind that the price that they're paying at the pump, um, it is uh, certainly impacting confidence, and, and that's actually one of the reasons that we recently scaled back our exposure to consumer discretionary companies within our strategy, is because we think that consumers will perhaps shift or rein in their own discretionary purchases because they're, they're being forced to spend on these more everyday items like food and energy. And so I think that that does have an impact on spending. Um, and, and, you know, so much of our economic outlook is based on the strength of the consumer and really the consumers, they, they are certainly, they have the, this uh, strong balance sheets. There's over $2 trillion in accumulated savings from the pandemic they are are certainly able to spend, but how willing are they to spend when they're when they're they're stuck paying these prices, um, and and they're seeing uh, footage of what's going on in Ukraine? It doesn't really make them feel that inclined to go out and spend the way that they normally would. And so I think that that's why maybe tomorrow's consumer confidence report is a little bit um, uh, more important than than it otherwise would be. You know, the the JOLTS data um, coming out this week, as well as the jobs report, you know. In the past, the the monthly jobs report, um, it it was kind of a a monthly holiday to us all. It was, um, you know, it was the the big event that we were all so interested in. These days, we we know the job market is extremely tight. The uh, it has uh, it's it's looking probably too healthy in in the fact that uh, consumers jobs are, are quite safe, actually. Um, they can go and, and uh, you know they, they can leave their job and, and go and find one pretty easily. Um, all data was suggest, and so that's actually putting upward pressure on wages because these companies can't uh, can't fill these job openings fast enough. So I think that it's probably less important these days than than it has been in the past. You know, these days we're really more focused on inflation, um, how the Fed is going to respond to that inflation, and, and then I think uh, just on, on the, uh, more kind of front and center is the situation in Ukraine. So. Yeah, the jobs report is going to get a lot of attention this week. We, um, I, I think the most economists expect about 500,000 jobs to be added for, uh, for the month of March. Um, but uh, I, I don't necessarily think it'll be too market moving or that it'll be something that allows the Fed to alter the course of its uh, plans for monetary policy. I think that either way, no matter what happens, inflation is what they're focused on, not jobs um, as part of that dual mandate. They're really focusing on, on trying to restore price stability here.
0: So we've run through the consumer confidence, the jolts and the job report coming up this week. That's the economic data. Is there anything else that we had to hit today or should we wrap up a little
1: early? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that we've covered just about everything here. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think this was, uh, th- this is a pretty complete market update. I'm sure we'll have more to uh, to dive into next week, but uh, yeah, I, I think this is good. we got a quarterly review coming up to always look forward to. <laughs>
0: Irreverent, over the top, and smart as a whip. This is the Rob Black Show. I was just talking during the commercial break because I don't see myself as a mentor. I see myself as a friend. I see myself as a peer. And the producer and I were talking about what stocks to buy and what stocks not to buy. And, you know, how did you do during the pandemic? And how did you do starting up? And what consistency? When did you find your level of consistency? And for me, there was a very loud moment in my life where I was like, "I don't really want to buy stocks that I I need to rent. I think you could rent stocks, or I think you could own stocks." And let me tell you the, the and this is where finance gets behavioral in my mind. Right? Um, what's the difference in my mind? There's not one stock when the market went down in 2020 in the heart of the pandemic. There's not one stock. When we hit a bear market in what felt like one trading session, it wasn't, but there wasn't one that I was like, oh, I I really don't want to own this stock now, 20 years ago, if there was a correction, there were some stocks that made me want to vomit. There were some stocks that made me upset. Like, oh, I don't feel so good today. I remember in 2000, 2001, 2002, when technology hit the biggest correction that it could ever hit because in the 1990s, it was glorious. You got to go back and start thinking George Bush, senior. You got to go back and start thinking Bubba, president, Bill Clinton. You got to go into the, how did we just elect a governor from Arkansas? So you're in that men- mentality, okay? You're listening to 90s music. And we started learning about this thing called the internet and it rocked and it rolled and it went higher and higher. We started to see in stories like pets.com or two graduate students in Stanford have come up with an algorithm that allows you to search the internet. It's got a spider technology. There's two from Stanford and there is two from Berkeley, two of the greatest institutions in the world. Um. One was Yahoo and one was Google, right? And you could buy a stock late back in the 1990s. You could say, you know, AOL is already quadrupled. I'm going to buy a little bit more. And it's it worked for you until 2000. Then it didn't work. I remember clients, friends, family, because just eight years prior to 1992, there was a housing market crash and the saving in loans, the thrifts, a type of banking that we don't really acknowledge anymore. <clears throat> um, they, they were failing consistently. They were lending out money. They should have been lending and the housing market brought them down. When I say they should have, they weren't, they were lending out money. They should have been lending. The, the standards weren't tight. Here's the problem. And it's going to happen again. There's going to be loose standards to get you in a house. And there's going to be really tight standards to keep you out. And the tight standards are what help in the long run of a strong economy. The loose standards are what's pending disasters. So the 1990s saw a big run up in stocks. And yeah, there were some people who felt sick in 2000. Because they had just seen this in 1992 happen to the banks. Now it was happening to their beloved tech stocks. Don't let a stock market decline ruin your retirement. <clears throat> Looking at this again, I I have two portfolios. Let me be very clear about this. One of them is managed by EP Wealth. I don't know what's in it. There's an investment policy committee of 10 people. They get together, they robble, and um, they figure out what stocks to buy and sell. And they all have certification, like certified financial planner, chartered financial analyst. Like they're all legit. Too legit. Too legit to quit. Then I have my portfolio because I'm on the air. I want to talk about growth investing. This is a show dedicated to getting you to retirement about creating wealth. And there's not one stock that I regret owning right now. I'll give you an example. Nike. I've been through up cycles and I've been through down cycles. I've been through Nike making their shoes in Japan and Indonesia. I've been through Nike now dominating in China. And then you get into these problems like, oh, is China going to support Russia? Is China going to buy oil from the Saudis? What's this mean for the United States relationship? Is is China going to go bad? I'm pretty comfortable with it. I own Nike. I own Disney. Now, sure, there's going to be a year where some kid goes on a roller coaster. Or Let's talk about this because it hasn't been too soon. It's been long enough. The kid at a Disney resort in Florida got eaten by a crocodile. And you start thinking about Peter Pan having a crocodile and he ate the Captain Hook's hand. And you're like, this just feels like there's a late night joke to be had. And then you're like, no, no, that's someone's kid. And you suddenly think better of it. But when I owned Disney and that kid got eaten by an alligator, I was like, you know what? I didn't say this. I didn't say I should buy more. I wasn't that insensitive. But I'm like, they'll get through this. They'll get through SARS. They'll get through Disney Shanghai being shut down because communist China government says, eh, we're sending a message. They'll get through Disney Shanghai being shut down because of COVID. In the end, I was talking to my producer and like, I was like, I don't buy stocks that I want to sell. Like, that's just not me anymore. It, it, it causes stress. It causes anxiety. There's um, a great company. And I'm not knocking it when I say this, it's Cloudflare. This is one of the most intriguing security stocks in networking technology that I've ever seen. Cybersecurity, we you know, Russia's hacking, China's hacking. I once had the stupidity to say on air 20 years ago, who are the dumb idiots who open their email and get the anticornacova virus? <laughs> guess who got the anticornacova virus that day? That night, guess whose hard drive got ripped into shreds? That would be me. Keep in mind, I, I see myself and uh, like, what what movie actor would you be if you were in the movies? I'm like, I'm that guy, you know, the guy at the fort that surrounded my Indians. I'm, I'm that guy who, you mean the hero who comes in with the cavalry. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm the guy who's already at the fort, who's in charge of the last 10 men. And he's telling Kevin Costner, I'm like, yeah, there's Indians around. And we are you know, we've been fighting. We've been waiting for you. We're so glad. And the next thing, you know, an arrow goes into my heart and kills me. And Kevin Costner goes, what? what do I do now? I'm the guy who takes the arrow. <laughs> like That's my fated alley. So I don't buy stocks that are going to get me in trouble. And again, I'm not always going to be right with that. And I'm going to miss opportunities. But like Cloudflare, I love the idea. But what I hate is the idea that some body out there is coming up with a better idea. In, I, I just don't feel comfortable with security stocks. Now, I need to get over that because I think the long-term future is there, but like, there's a company I like a lot as far as the company, not the stock, okay, Um, called Okta, O-K-T-A, and it's, it's like the birth of a rock star, and it's like Eddie Van Halen came out of his mother's womb playing the guitar. It's that kind of cool of a stock. It's that kind of cool of a sector. And in third grade, Eddie Van Halen was smoking cigarettes with his 12th grade teachers. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we're talking. I, I, that kind of stock makes me feel uncomfortable. Because I'm like, when the next child prodigy is going to come out of his mother's womb smoking with his teachers? And Because they're coming. And it's just a fatality that I have. The arrows that's going to hit me. So I'm a good investor because I like to buy and buy more. When it comes to stocks, now when it comes to mutual funds and index, I like doing the exact opposite. So for my four hundred one k, which I rebalance twice a year, I go in and I look. I'm like, well, that's large cap companies, and I'm just going to say twenty percent. And then I look at my small caps. I'm like twenty percent. Let me look at mid. No, I don't really small cap. Let's go ten percent. Then I'm going to say mid cap ten percent. So now I'm at 20, 10, 10. Then we go international. 20 percent you start building out your numbers and depending on how that plays out you see where the risk is in the 401k pretty obviously and in the long term because the 401k is not for five years 10 years 15 it's for 30 years your career i'm okay buying more of my losers as long as they're low cost because you don't get the money back when they're high cost funds you really shouldn't be paying more than one percent roughly for any financial product, because there's products out there that you can pay 25 cents instead of a dollar on a hundred dollars, a hundred dollar investment, you pay a dollar, that's 1%, right? You could pay one quarter of 1%, 25 basis points for the same exact kind of risk. I'm kind of taking that very liberally. But what I got into, and I, I think this is where the conversation goes in this segment, and this is where it ends, is don't let a stock market decline ruin your retirement. When I was in my 40s, I was like, yeah, I could just work longer. In my 30s, I was like, yeah, that, this financial bet, if it doesn't work out and the wife leaves me, that's fine. I'll just find another wife. Like You can see over it, but when, you're, when you hit 50, you're like, I don't really want to be buying the, the next Nike. I want Nike. I don't really want to be buying the next Disney, like DreamWorks. I want Disney. So after squirreling away money in my 401k and my IRA, in real estate, in stocks, for decades and decades, I don't want a stock market decline to ruin my retirement. Now, it's interesting. Stock market declines in the last twenty years have lasted a relatively short amount of times. But if you look at history, there are some stock market declines last two or three years, and then we fight our way back to where we were, and that's that. That's a comfort that I had in my 40s, and my 30s. I got two or three years, right? In my fifties, I'd be like, well, what if I lose my job and the stock market's down for two or three years? What if my wife leaves me, I lose my job and someone runs over my dog? Like, what if everything starts to unravel? I I save the my retirement worry by buying great companies. By buying great companies were around when I was a kid. How long have you heard about the name Visa in your lifetime or Disney in your lifetime? Is that not a fair question? Don't they kind of give you a little security that everything's going to be okay? Because it's been okay. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial money, investing, and more. Find me online at Rob Black Show, Twitter, Rob Black Show, YouTube, Rob Black Show.
1: Have a question? Reach out at robblackshow.com. robblackshow.com.